If you would, as you're finding your seats, turn to Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. And if you would follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, and Nephetali, Gab, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. You would pray along with me. Dear Heavenly Father, God, Lord, God, we thank you uh, for this amazing book, Lord. God, I thank you for your word, inspiring men, Lord, to write not just commands, Lord, although there are commands in Scripture, but story, narrative. God, I'm amazed as I go through the narrative of Scripture, just how intriguing and how engaging your word is, Lord. I pray, Lord, that each and every person that's here at our church just grows a love, a deep, passionate love, Lord, for your word. God, I pray that this morning as we go through the book of Genesis and we look to start the book of Exodus, Lord, that we see this amazing story that spans both Genesis and Exodus and through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, God. A story of your love for us, the redemption, Lord, of mankind. God, help us this morning to be in awe of that story in your son's name. Amen. We are starting a sermon series in the book of Exodus, and we've been talking about this for a while. Exodus is the second book of the Pentateuch, the second book of the Bible. Pentateuch is uh, the fancy theological word we use for the first five books of the Bible. They're all written by Moses, the first five books of the Bible, and so Exodus and Genesis are both written by Moses. Today I really wanted to do an introduction sermon, just introducing the book of Exodus, and it's overwhelming just all the different things that I wanted to talk about today. But after studying, especially these first five verses that I read, I truly believe that the context and intro of Exodus is really just Genesis, the book of Genesis. So today I want to do an overview of the entire book of Genesis to really introduce the book of Exodus. So if you would, turn to Genesis 1, verse 1. And as you're turning there, I just want to give a couple of warnings. I like to do this and do a lot of reviews, and especially going through Genesis 1 through 11. So for us that have been a part of the church for a while now, this is very familiar territory and a lot of repetition. But I think Genesis 1 through 11 is so foundational that we cannot forget it as we enter into the rest of Scripture. Second thing, real quick, is um, this morning we're going to be moving quickly through Genesis. All the verses will be up on the screen. Um, So I would encourage you to open up your Bibles and follow along. I'll move you along where we're at as we go through Genesis. But if you want to just sit back and listen and and read the verses on the screen, feel welcome to do that. And the third thing I just want to say real quick before we get going is I'm not going to cover everything. There's 50 chapters in Genesis, and so I'm going to miss a few things. Um, There might be a couple themes or important things that happen in the book of Genesis that you absolutely love 
that are extremely important in the meta narrative of Scripture that I'm not going to cover today. I'm sorry. I had a massive amount of notes that I had to cut down to a uh, hopefully under hour long sermon. <laughs> so, um, if you would follow along with me, starting in verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and we just recently covered this. God created creation. It's his creation. Day one, he created light. Day two, he, uh, God stretched out the heavens. Day three, earth and vegetation. Day four, sun, moon, and stars. Day five, swarms and swarms of living creatures. Day six, land animals. And lastly, the pinnacle of his creation, as we've talked about recently, God created man. Day seven, God rested and enjoyed his creation. And creation was good. Verse 31, it says this, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And it was very good. I mean, just think about this. No sin, no death, no diseases, no viruses, no pain, no suffering, no relationship struggles. Adam and Eve had a perfect relationship And more importantly than anything else, they walked with God. God dwelt with man. Man had everything. In fact, in Genesis 1, 28, it says this, and God blessed them. He blessed them. He blessed man. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Of course, this leads us to Genesis 3. The fall of man, if you would, turn to Genesis 3, verse 3. Again, this is very familiar territory for us here at Country Oaks. Verse 3 says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. Somehow, Satan entered into a serpent and disguised himself as a snake, a serpent. And he talked to the woman and he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The serpent, who is Satan, is attacking truth here, and that's what he always does. That's why truth is so important. That's why truth needs to be proclaimed and studied. As Ross said in the morning, the first thing we need to do is dwell in truth because we will be faced with Satan's lies throughout the day. Verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it's the lust of the flesh, and that it was a delight to the eyes, the lust of the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, pride of life. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Adam and Eve sinned. In fact, they did the exact opposite of what God had commanded them to do. The man should have led the woman who was overseeing both had dominion over the animals and said the serpent led the woman and the man followed. Four immediate effects happened after this that have been around ever since. 
The first one was guilt and shame. And when I say guilt, I'm not talking about the feeling of guilt. I'm talking about true guiltiness. They knew they were naked. Genesis 3, 7, they were exposed in front of a holy God. The second effect that happened was man's effort through works. They sewed fig leaves together and tried to hide their nakedness. They tried to, tried to hide their guiltiness and shamefulness through sewing a couple of leaves together. The third effect was separation from God. Man and his wife hid themselves. Genesis 3.8, when they heard God in the garden, they used to walk with God. Now they hid themselves out of fear from God. And lastly, a refusal to take responsibility. Adam told God it was the woman's fault whom you gave to be with me. So not only did Adam sin, but he said, this sin is your fault, God. You gave me this woman. So God brings curses on Satan, man, and woman for this sin, but within Satan's curses, we should know by now there's a promise. A hope for all mankind, and that's found in Genesis 3.15. In the NASB, I like this translation. It says this in Genesis 3.15, and I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. The ESV says offspring, which is a good translation, descendant. It literally means seed, though. There will be enmity between your seed and her seed. There's a promised war that's going to happen between the seed of Satan and the seed of woman. Your seed, the seed of Satan, her seed, the seed of woman. There'll be war and enmity. And this is extremely important as we get to the book of Exodus. This war continues. But what's weird about this promise, and we should know this by now, biologically, who has the seed? Man, not woman. Look what it says, between you seed and her seed. There's only one person that's ever been born without a seed from man. That's Jesus, born to a virgin. The NIV says this, the second half of 15, and I like this. He, the seed that's coming, he will crush your head. That's, that's the serpent's head, that's Satan's head. He will crush your head, and you, Satan, the serpent, will strike his heel. What happens when a venomous snake strikes a man's heel? Death. In other words, to crush the serpent's head, this promised seed will die. What's that starting to sound like? It's the gospel. This is the first glimpse of the gospel we see in Scripture. In fact, right after man sins, God gives hope of redemption. Genesis 3.15 redeem man from sin to crush the serpent's head. The seed of the woman must come and must die. I don't know how much Adam and Eve knew through this promise and and their conversations and revelation that God has given to them, but there's hope here. Genesis 3.15 gave Adam and Eve hope of redemption. We learned that they had faith in this coming seed. They had hope in this coming seed for, for redemption, this offspring, the descendant that would come, that would crush the serpent's head by dying. And we see this hope in Genesis chapter 4. If you would, turn to Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. It says this in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Now, Adam knew Eve, 
his wife, and she conceived and born Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, we don't see this in English, but in Hebrew, there's excitement in Eve's um, voice when she says this. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Why is Eve so excited? She thought Cain was the seed. He would crush the serpent's head. He would redeem her and Adam. He, he was the chosen one talked about promise in Genesis 3.15. But Eve was wrong. And we know the story. Cain had a brother, Abel. Cain was jealous of Abel. Cain murdered Abel. The first chapter, the very first chapter after the fall, chapter 4. The first generation after Adam and Eve, we have the first murder. And we've lived in a fallen world ever since. Murder and war, ugliness and sin. I don't you think hard, though. What's the problem here? Think meta-narrative of Scripture, or the big story of Scripture, the promise that we find in Genesis 3.15. What happened to the seed? Cain wasn't the seed. In fact, it's clear that Cain was the seed of the serpent. The death of Abel was Satan's first attempt to stop God's plan, right? To stop the the coming seed from coming, to kill this seed before it got here. It's the first war between the the seed of the serpent, Cain, and the seed of the woman. Genesis 3.15, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. So here's the problem. If Cain's not the promised seed, but instead the seed of the serpent... And Abel's dead. Where is the seed of the woman? Where is the hope that God promised? We'll look at Genesis 4, verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she, that's Eve, said, God has appointed for me another offspring or another seed. We see the same excitement in verse 1 in this verse. God has pointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And then it says this in verse 26, to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Now, what is verse 26? We should know this again by now. What is verse 26? It's a genealogy, isn't it? Adam has a son, Seth. Seth has a son, Enosh. The seed is getting passed down from father to son, from father to son. But then the author, and I want to be clear, the author of the Pentateuch is Moses. So Moses wrote Genesis and Exodus. Moses, who is going to be the main character next to God in the book of Exodus, writes something interesting. He says this, At that time, the birth of Seth and Enosh, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, if you're looking at your scriptures, the word Lord is L-O-R-D, all capitals. That's because it's the covenant name Yahweh. People began to call upon the name of Yahweh. Moses is trying to tell us that there's something special about these births, and that's because the seed is getting passed down. There's still hope of a seed to come to crush the serpent's head. 
But I also want you to look exactly what he's saying here because this is going to be very important as we get into the book of Exodus. Remember, Moses is the author, and he says this again. At that time, people began to call upon the name of Yahweh. Yahweh. People are turning to Yahweh, in other words, for mercy and grace. And people begin to call upon his name, the name of the Lord, the name Yahweh, which is the major theme, I believe, in Exodus. The name of the Lord. We'll come back to that. We get to Genesis uh, chapter 5. You would turn to Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. What we see in Genesis chapter 5 is another genealogy. It says this in verse 1. This is the book of the generations or genealogy of Adam. Right? Why a genealogy? The answer is hope. That a seed's still coming. Right? Adam has a son, Seth. Seth has a son, Enosh. His son has a son. His son has a son. His has a son has a son. The seed's getting passed down through generation after generation after generation after generation. And the genealogy ends with Noah. Which leads us to chapter 6 through 9, which is the flood account. At this point, mankind is so evil. Again, we live in a fallen world. Adam and Eve's descendants are filling the world at this point, and mankind is so evil, God says, I'm taking them out. In fact, Genesis 5, or 6, 5, I like how the New Living Translation just captures what is being said here. It says this, The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they, they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. The effects of the fall. In fact, mankind was so evil, God was going to wash the earth clean with water. A flood. And start over. But what's the problem? Again, think meta-narrative of Scripture, a big story of Scripture. What about the seed? Right, the seed hasn't come yet. You know, this is interesting. I truly believe if you follow the story, again, you get to the book of Exodus, you get to the book of Genesis. In fact, you get to all the stories of the Old Testament, and, and we interpret them as, as, I think, Western Americans, because we don't have time to sit and read 50 chapters straight. <laughs> we just see them as different stories that aren't connected. But they're all connected. One of the main reasons God saves Noah's family was to preserve the seed. Because he made a promise to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15. A seed is coming. Noah had the seed, and God saves him and his sons. The seed is passed down to his son, Shem. God saves Noah and his family and really starts over. In fact, Genesis 9.1 says this, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's the same exact command he gave to Adam. God blessed man, Adam and Eve, and told them to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Gives that same exact command to Noah. Then we get to chapters 10 and 11. We follow Noah's family. It grows and grows, and in a very short amount of time, Noah's family rebels against God and tries to build a tower to heaven to make their name great, to make man's name great, trying to reach God. Listen to this. 
through man's works, through building a tower, the Tower of Babel. And I love this. If you look at Genesis 11, 5, it says this, and the Lord, again, Yahweh, came down to see the city and the tower. Let me just be clear. Scripture makes it clear that God doesn't have to go anywhere. He sees all. (laughs) Moses is being facetious here. He's saying this big tower that you're going to reach God with. God had to come down just to see it, right? Side note, man's effort to reach God through works always fails. It always falls completely short. Being good is not going to get you to God. Doing things is not going to get you to God. Because of man's rebellion, God comes down to man, confuses their language, and spreads, spreads them out throughout the earth. Now, this is a very important story because this is how we get languages and cultures. But more than that, chapter 10 and 11 really a genealogy. That's what most of it is. In particular, Shem's family, right? The seed gets passed down to Shem. Shem has a son who has a son who has a son, and we follow generation after generation after generation until we get to Abram. And at this point, the narrative really shifts in Genesis. In fact, you can split Genesis into two parts. Genesis 1 through 11, which we're really familiar with because we've covered so much here at this church, and Genesis 12 through 50. Genesis 12 through 50, the narrative really slows down and it focuses in on one family, Abram, who becomes Abraham's family. In Genesis 1 through 11, we go through many generations. It's just generation after generation after generation following the seed all the way until we get to Abram. In chapters 12 through 50, we follow four generations, and that's it. In chapters 12 through 25, we have Abraham. In chapters 26 through 36, we have Isaac, who is Abraham's son, and Isaac's son, Jacob. In chapters 37 through 50, the end of Genesis, we have Jacob and his 12 sons. But before we move on and kind of look into the different stories that follow this family, what is that? It's a genealogy. It's a big genealogy. Chapters 12 through 50, Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Seed is getting passed down throughout Genesis. But let's look at Genesis chapter 12. Again, this is going to be extremely important for the book of Exodus once we get there. The narrative really slows down and it focuses in on one family. That's Abram who becomes Abraham. Same person. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. It says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. Now, I'll be clear. Abram was a pagan. He lived in a pagan land, and he worshipped false gods. 
The Bible makes this very clear in Joshua 24, verse 2. It says this, And Joshua said to all the people, this is Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor. They served other gods. Abram and his family served other gods. Yet, God, purely out of his love and grace, comes to Abram out of all the people in the world and calls him and says, verse 1, go. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land I'll show you. In other words, leave your pagan roots behind and go to a land that I'll show you. He didn't even tell him where to go. He just says, go. I'll show you where to go later. In verse 2, he says this, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Now again, we're supposed to read this from 1 through 50. There's meant to be a contrast here between chapter 11 and chapter 12. Chapter 11, listen, man tries to make his name great through works, by building a tower trying to reach God by his own effort. Get to chapter 12. Abraham's name will be great purely by God's grace. Not because Abraham was special. In fact, Abram was a pagan worshiper. He was old. He was fatherless. And you want to know the or humiliation that Abraham had to efface day to day. His name means exalted father, Abram. And he has no kids. In a time where kids were everything. He was the least likely to be called by God. Purely through God's sovereign grace, Abraham's name will be great. Verse 3. I will bless those who bless you And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Amazing promise. Verse four. So Abraham went. That's amazing faith. He doesn't even know where he's going, but he went. As the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 70 years, or 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Verse five. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of, at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. In chapter 12, God promises really three things to Abram, right? A great nation. Verse 2, he says this, I will make of you a great nation. In other words, you're going to have a son. He's going to have a son. He's going to have sons. And they're going to become a great nation. Many people and mighty. He promised him that he'll become a great nation. He promises him that he will have a land. This nation will have a land to dwell in. Verse 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, this nation that will come from you, I will give this land. 
And finally, he promises a blessing. Verse 2. And I'll make of you a great nation. And I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Look at verse 3. It says this. And I will bless those who bless you. In other words, those that bless this nation that's going to come from you, I will bless. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. In other words, those... Right, who dishonor this nation that's going to come from Abraham, I will curse. Side note, again, this is very important as we get to the book of Exodus. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Again, I believe this is pointing to the seed. It says, and in you. In other words, there's a seed within you. And the seed of a wom- the, the woman will come from you and all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And another way you can say this is all the nations shall be blessed. Just as a side note, this really is our foundation to the great commission that the church has. Go, same command Abraham had, go. Go to the nations. Share about the seed of the woman, Jesus all the nations will be blessed through the seed of the woman. This message, the gospel message that we are called as a church to go to the nations and share about. This is why we take missions so seriously here at Country Oaks. Listen, God's heart for the nations does not start in the New Testament. In fact, it doesn't even start in the Old Testament. It starts a chapter after the nations were created. Chapter 11, Tower of Babel, nations, Now go, and we're going to bless the nations. That's our calling. Let's get back to the story. God makes a covenant with Abraham. He really promises three things, a great nation, a land, and a blessing. But here's the problem. Abram and Sarai at this point are old. They're old. Verse 4, it says, And Abram was 75 years old. And Sarai, Abram's wife, is barren. In other words, they have no children. And this promise all hinges on Abraham having a child. So turn with me to Genesis 15.1. Genesis 15.1, it says this, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. It's God talking to Abram. Look at verse 5. It says this. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heavens and the number of the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. In other words, Abram, Trust me. I will fulfill my promise. You will have a son through Sarah. I am trustworthy. Verse 6, look what it says. And he, this is Abram, believed. In other words, had faith. He believed the Lord, that's Yahweh. and And he counted it to him as righteousness. In other words, because of Abraham's faith, in Yahweh and this promise of a descendant and descendants coming 
God counted it to him as righteousness. In other words, even in the Old Testament, it's salvation by grace through faith. Through faith. Abraham wasn't anything special as we have learned. A pagan, childless, old, yet he was chosen by God. He was offered a great promise and Abraham had faith in God and God counted it to him as righteousness. It was an imputed righteousness. It was a righteousness that wasn't his own. Abraham does have a son and the son's name is Isaac and we get to chapters 25 through 36 which is all about Isaac and his son Jacob. Abraham has a son Isaac. Isaac has twins Esau and Jacob. And even though Isaac favored his older son Esau, God blessed Jacob. God chose Jacob, and the seed is passed down to him. So is the blessing. Jacob has 12 boys, and all his boys become the 12 tribes of Israel. But turn with me to Genesis 32, verse 24. It's a very important passage that I think most pastors skip over because they don't know what to do with it. It's an interesting passage. Let me just give you the context if you're turning there. This is a very low point in Jacob's life. Jacob has had a life of struggles, especially in relationships. He struggled with his father as his father favored his brother, not him. He struggled with his brother as his brother hated him. He struggled with his wives. He struggled with his father-in-law for years. Jacob's life is really just a big struggle at this point. He's on his way back to his childhood home, and it's a very low point. In fact, he thinks his brother is going to come and kill him. And he goes away by himself in verse 24 and says this, And Jacob was left alone, I'm guessing very discouraged and depressed. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Now, that's just weird. <laughs> it gets weirder. But let me just paint this. A man appears out of nowhere and starts wrestling with him. And they don't just wrestle for an hour. They wrestle like all day long. But it gets weirder. Look at verse 25. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, in other words, Jacob was winning this wrestling match, he touched his hip. The man touched his hip, in other words, hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he was wrestling with him. Then he, this man, said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. You get to this point in the story, and you realize there's a lot more going on than just a wrestling match. And this man is God which is interesting. A man, that's God. Verse 27, it says this, and he, right, this man, said to him, that's Jacob, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Israel literally means something like struggles with God or wrestles with God or God struggles. Jacob's name is changed to Israel 
by God. It's a weird passage, but I really think that God is promising Jacob here that he will prevail. Jacob, you're going to prevail in all of your struggles as long as you hold on to me. As long as you have faith in me. And look at verse 29. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. Now this is important. Again, remember the author here is Moses. And this is foundational to the book of Exodus. Jacob wants to know God's name. What's your name? I really believe at this point, Jacob probably knows that God's name is Yahweh. We see that through the the whole book of Genesis. What I think he's asking is, what does that mean? Remember, he's face to face with someone that looks like a man. In fact, Hosea 12 verse 4 calls this man an angel or the angel of the Lord. Who do you think this is? I'm confident that this is the pre-incarnate Jesus that pops up throughout the Old Testament. If you look at verse 29, it says this. Then Jacob asked him, again, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask me my name? And there he blessed him. And the story just moves on. Listen, one of the main themes of Exodus is the name of the Lord. When I say Lord, I mean Yahweh. Who is Yahweh? In fact, that same question gets asked by Moses in Exodus 3.13. We know the story. Moses sees the burning bush and, and God says, go, go to Egypt and, and go to your people, go to my people Israel. And Moses says, well, what should I say to them? He, he says this in verse 13. The, the Moses says to God, if I come to my people Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. That's Jacob. And they asked me, what is his name? That's the same question Jacob asked. What shall I say to them? He's asking the same question Jacob asked, and Jacob didn't get an answer. Listen, I believe the book of Exodus is the answer to that question. God is going to reveal who he is. Not just to to Jacob's descendants, Israel. Not just to Moses, but to Egypt and to the whole world. Listen, if you're here this morning and you want to know who God is, if you're searching for him and you want to know the character of God, who is this God? Exodus is just a great place to start. In fact, I don't know if there's a better book. Look at what verse 30 says. So Jacob called the name of the place Penel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. In chapter 32, Jacob's name is changed to Israel, and his 12 boys become the 12 tribes of Israel. So we finally get to the last part of Genesis, and that's chapters 37 through 50. Jacob, now Israel, has 12 sons, and you're following these 12 boys, and we learn that Jacob doesn't learn his lesson. The pain and suffering he went through, not being favored, he does the same thing his dad does and favors one of his boys, Joseph. And his 11 brothers hate him for it. In fact, they wanted him dead. They wanted to murder him. 
Instead, they throw him into slavery, and from here, Joseph is falsely accused of a crime and ends up in jail. Yet, God is sovereign over it all, and through miraculous means, Joseph ends up being second in command of the most powerful nation in the world, Egypt. Second only to Pharaoh himself. And because there is a famine in the land, Joseph's 11 brothers end up in Egypt looking for food with Joseph. And they settle in the land of Goshen, which is within the nation of Egypt. And that really is the end of Genesis, and there's so much more in those chapters that we've skipped over. But now turn back to Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. Now that we have the context, verse 1 says this. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. That points back to Genesis. Moses is saying, hey, read Genesis before you get here. <laughs> Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, right? Zebulun, uh, Benjamin, Dan, Nephetali, Gad, and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob, were 70 persons. In other words, there were 70. It wasn't even a nation. We have more than 70 in my extended family right now. (laughs) Joseph was already in Egypt. Exodus 1, verses 1 through 5, tells us that the context and intro to Exodus is Genesis. Exodus is the continued story of Genesis. It's connected. And Lord willing, we'll start the story next week. But before we end today, I really want to just look at five themes of Genesis because these themes kind of transfer over to Exodus and really apply to our lives. Quickly, just five themes of Genesis before we end today. The first theme is this, the coming seed. Right, again, we see this in Genesis 3.15 that there is a coming seed that will crush the serpent's head. And Genesis follows this seed all the way from from Adam to Abraham to to Isaac to Jacob and finally to Judah if you get to the end of the book of Genesis. And we really see the story keep going. We can follow the seed throughout the whole Old Testament, right, through the kings, which is nothing but a big genealogy of the seed slowly getting passed down from king to king to king until we get to the New Testament and we see a genealogy that ends with Joseph and Mary really ending in Jesus, the seed of the woman. In other words, Genesis and really the whole Old Testament all just points to Jesus. That's the main theme, one of the main themes of Genesis. The second main theme of Genesis is this, God's election. It's a major theme. God chooses Abraham over all the families in the world. He, he comes to Abraham God chooses Isaac over Ishmael. God chooses Jacob over Esau. And Jacob's descendants becomes God's chosen people, Israel. And here's the important part about that. And this is the thing I want us to to learn from this. God didn't choose them because they were special. You read Genesis and you see the exact opposite of that. They were special because God chose them. 
In fact, God wanted to make that very clear to Israel. In Deuteronomy 7, 6, it says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. That's a good thing. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, right? God chose Israel. That's what God is saying. And then verse 7, he gives them reality. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that God set his love on you and chose you. In fact, just to be clear, you were the fewest of all people. And there are 70. Again, the nation of Heiner right now is over 70. (laughs) They're not special. In fact, they're the fewest of all people. Then why did God choose them? Verse 8. But it's because the Lord loves you. And he's keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In other words, Genesis, a major theme is God's election, right? God chooses Israel. Again, verse 6 says, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And then we get to Exodus, which is about God's redemption. God saves and redeems this chosen people. Verse 8, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Which leads to a third theme that's connected to this, the sinfulness of man, which is clear throughout all of Genesis. Adam and Eve sinned. Cain murdered his brother. Lamech, who we didn't even talk about, brags about his murderous ways. This is the great-grandson, great-great-great-grandson of Cain. Genesis 6, 5 says the Lord observed that everything man thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. Noah ends up in the very end of his story drunk and naked. His offspring builds a tower in rebellion to God. Nimrod, one of Noah's grandkids, is a great hunter, probably a hunter of men, probably a mass murderer. Abraham tried to give his his wife away twice to save his own skin. Sarah laughed at God and told Abraham to have relations with another woman. Isaac showed favoritism, caused all types of family issues. Jacob was a manipulative liar, had multiple wives. His family had all types of favoritism and mess. His 12 sons, just think about this. You want to talk about a mess, and there's all types of stuff I didn't even talk about. Some stuff that's not even appropriate. 11 of them tried to murder one of them. You think you have family issues? And they threw him into slavery. Ugly, evil, sin, yet, and this is important, God used it all. Even the sin, even the evil, which leads to our fourth theme, the sovereignty of God. In fact, I think one of the there is a thesis statement of all of Genesis. It's found in the very end of Genesis, and it's found in chapter 50, verse 20, where Joseph is talking to his brothers, and he says to them, as for you, you meant evil against me. You wanted me dead. You threw me into slavery. Your hearts were evil. You meant evil for me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. In fact, if you think about it, through the 11's evil act, God used it to save the 11. 
and their families from famine. God is sovereign over everything. He uses everything for his glory and our good. Which leads to the fifth and final theme that we see in Genesis. The goodness of God. God makes creation. And he makes it good. In fact, he says he makes it very good. He makes man in his own image. And man is fearfully and wonderfully made. The image of God breathes life into him. He makes a beautiful, perfect garden and a place for man to live. He gives man everything. He says, have dominion, and man blows it. Man rebels against this good God. And even after that, God shows mercy and grace to mankind through Adam, through Noah, through Abraham, and promises Abraham and his descendants an amazing promise. A great nation that will come from Abraham, a a land that this nation will live in, and a blessing that this nation will bless every nation on the earth. And look at verse 7 in Exodus chapter 1. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew, grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. You know what that is? That's the same blessing and command that was given in the garden. Almost word for word. Fruitful, multiplied, the land was filled with them. Same command and blessing that was given to Noah. It's the fulfillment of the promise that was given to Abraham that you will be a great nation. It's the start of it. God is going to fulfill his promises. Israel is becoming a great nation. God is faithful to what he says. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we worship you, God. As we see in the history of man, as we go through Genesis, we just fail and fail and fail and fail, and you are gracious towards us. I know in my personal life, Lord, that's my testimony. That it's failure and failure and failure again, and yet you are gracious towards me. God, help us to see that. Help us to worship you. Help us to trust in your sovereignty, to see your goodness, Lord, to to have faith in your promises, Lord. Be with us as a church. In your son's name, amen.